Hello, and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for June 2009. I'm Eric Martins, Managing Editor for The Journal. I'm joined by Assistant Managing Editor Anirban Mahapatra. Hi, Anirban. Hi, Eric. Hello, everyone. This month, we highlight five research papers, one review, and one perspective. Aberrations in cap-dependent translation initiation can lead to many cancers. Research from Karsten Wagner's lab describes the first non-toxic small molecule able to inhibit a key process causing these cancers. We'll be talking to him later in the podcast. In another paper in this issue, research from the lab of Laura Kiesling describes the discovery of a paraplasmic binding protein antagonist and a general strategy for the creation of additional antagonists for these proteins. We'll also be speaking with her later in the podcast. Research from the lab of Alex Dieters now describes the use of light-activated Cree recombinase as a tool for the spatial and temporal control of gene function in mammalian cells. Our review in this issue, written by Shen Ming Li, Daniel Larson, and David Lawrence, describes the design, synthesis, and applications of caged and related photoresponsive compounds. Researchers led by Nive Morin describe synthetic cell permeable peptides that act as inhibitors of platelet aggregation, adhesion, ADP secretion, and thromboxane synthesis. Our perspective in this issue comes from the lab of Ben Cravat and discusses the strengths of two different proteomic methods and the potential for these technologies to expand the scope and sensitivity of large-scale studies of proteolysis and biological systems. Igor Mochalkin and colleagues describe a new fragment-based drug discovery approach in search of novel antimicrobial drugs. We'll be speaking with Richard Miller, one of the investigators of this study, later in the podcast. Our final research paper, which comes from the lab of John Katzenellenbogen, describes new compounds that directly disrupt the androgen receptor-steroid receptor coactivator interaction. But first, we'd like to highlight some interesting content you'll find only on our website. In Ask the Expert, we give you the opportunity to pose questions directly to top scientists in the field. Our current expert is Dr. Sheng Ding, Associate Professor at the Scripps Research Institute. He'll be fielding your questions about the use of chemical and functional genomics tools to study stem cell biology and regeneration. Submit your questions for him today at www.acschemicalbiology.org. To learn more about the authors of the papers in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This month, we meet eight young scientists, Elise Bernard, Matthew Kitching, Daniel Larson, Shen Ming Li, Rebecca Myers, Lavanya Parthasarati, Antonio Ramos Montoya, and James Shearman. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We continue to define chembio glossary terms on the air. This month's keyword is caged compound. A caged compound is any species, typically a bioactive compound, whose activity is suppressed by a photosensitive functional group. We are now joined by Laura Kiesling at the University of Wisconsin. Hi, Laura. Hey, Eric. In the paper in ACS Chemical Biology, your lab has described the first antagonist of the inactive form of a paraplasmic binding protein. To put this study into context for our listeners, could you please mention what these proteins do and why antagonists of these proteins would be useful? Yes, there's a number of different paraplasmic binding proteins, and so they have a wide range of functions, and the functions span from things like nutrient uptake, to playing important roles in signaling, including signaling in virulence and quorum sensing, which has been associated with biofilm formation. So the paraplasmic binding proteins are potential targets for antimicrobial agents. 
So in the current study, you focused on a specific PBP and a sugar that fails to activate this protein. Can you tell us what you discovered about why the sugar does not activate the periplasmic binding protein? Sure. So we've been studying chemotaxis in response to sugars, and there are a number of different sugars that were looked at initially by my colleague, Julius Adler, who really did pioneering work in trying to understand bacterial sensing and bacterial chemotaxis and what sort of molecules bacteria respond to. And when we were looking at these derivatives, we noticed that you could put substituents at the one position of the sugar, the anomeric position, and it looked like from the x-ray structure that you should be able to put the x-ray structure, for example, of periplasmic binding protein bound to glucose, that you should be able to put a substituent at the three position. But in Julius's papers, he showed that the 3-O-methylglucose was not a chemoattractant, but the 1-methylglucose was. And so we were curious about the differences between the 3-O-methylglucose and the 1-O-methylglucose. And so we looked at their ability to bind, and we found that both of them could bind. And then Jack Borok, the graduate student in working on the project, decided to, in collaboration with Katie Forrest's lab, crystallize the glucose-galactose binding protein in the presence of the 3-O-methylglucose. And what we found is that it binds in an orientation that's different than that of glucose, and it binds such that it forces the periplasmic binding protein to stay open. So I should make the point that the general paradigm for how the periplasmic binding proteins work is that when they bind their ligand, they adopt the closed conformation. When they're in the unbound state, they're in the open conformation. And it's really the closed conformation that then docks on the receptors. And then that binding of the closed conformation to the chemoreceptor activates chemotaxis. So what we found is that 3-O-methylglucose could bind to the periplasmic binding protein, but instead of inducing the closed conformations, which is what known ligands did, it instead kept the protein in the open form. So how were these observations used in the design of a PBB inhibitor? Well, what Jack had done previously is actually solve the structure of the open form of the glucose-galactose binding protein, which had not been known, and then the closed form of the glucose-galactose binding protein was known. And so what he did was he noticed that when the protein goes from open to closed form, it has these N and C termini that really don't move very much. These domains act as sort of rigid bodies, and it's only this one particular hinge region that really moves a lot. And this had been seen by other people as well. So what we did is we superimposed open and closed forms. So if you superimpose the two N-terminal domains with glucose bound, you can see that the N-terminal domains superimpose 
really well. And if you superimpose the C-terminal domains with glucose bound, you see that they superimpose really well. And when we looked at the position of the two glucose ligands, it looked like you could fit two little molecules of glucose in there. And so then Jack and Emin had the idea, well, let's just link these two molecules of glucose together by this linker. So they designed a linker, and they made the compound. And the whole idea was this compound would act as kind of a wedge or a brace to keep then the periplasmic binding protein open. And one glucose domain would interact with the C-terminal domain of the protein, and the other glucose moiety would interact with the N-terminal domain. So we just made this single compound and tested it, and it worked. That usually in science doesn't happen. So it was, I think, a testament really to uh, Jack and Emin's design idea that it worked. So finally, uh, do you think that the general principles that you just outlined could help other investigators design inhibitors for the PBBs that they're studying in their own labs? Yeah, that's one of the things that we're really excited about. When we surveyed a lot of these proteins, there are many cases where open and closed forms of the proteins are known, and you can actually use the same strategy that we used to design little dimeric molecules that should, we think, again, act as kind of a wedge or a stent to hold these things open. So I think the design strategy is very general, and that's something we're very interested in pursuing. Well, good luck with your future experiments, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We are joined today by Rick Wagner at the University of Minnesota. Hi, Rick. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. So your research group described the first non-toxic small molecule that inhibits epithelial to mesenchymal transition. What exactly is epithelial to mesenchymal transition? Well, it's a complex process, but basically what it is is a way that cells, in particular cancer cells or cells in tissues, reprogram themselves so that they can detach from the tissues. For example, in a cancer cell, it would reprogram itself to detach from the tumor, and then that becomes a metathesis. And so to separate themselves and then go out and be able to penetrate and begin growing in other tissues. Basically, that's that process in a nutshell. And so it involves an entire range of different molecules, and it's becoming recognized as something that really needs to be looked at as a way of addressing potentially the prevention of metathesizing cancers. How is the eukaryotic translation initiation factor 4E or EIF4E involved in this process? That's a good question. It's not really known, and that's sort of the really interesting thing about what we found is that we're the first to really identify 4E directly has an impact on EMT. There was a report oh, back in 1994, but it was never really followed up on. It was kind of buried a bit in the fact that it could be involved in this process. And what we provided is a way of the first sort of concrete evidence that that is truly what's going on by using these chemical probes, which they didn't have 10, 15 years ago. We know it's involved in the regulation of basically the signal transduction pathways when receptors are uh, interact with cytokines and other small molecules. And it's a key regulator. In fact, it is one of the key regulators in cancer and a key target. And my collaborators have found that out. 
by using some of our chemical probes as well as other microbiological techniques. But 4E is involved mainly in its importance is, is that it, it regulates the translation, and that means what it does is it regulates the conversion of the reading of the mRNA into proteins. What we think is that there's select mRNAs that are within the cell that are highly regulated, and 4E is involved in that regulation, basically turning them on and turning them off. It's a little bit different than when you think about transcription, where you're interacting with the DNA to make the mRNA. In this case, it's interacting with the mRNA to make the protein. And so what we think is that there are key regulatory processes that 4E is involved in that affect the global transition to EMT. So that leads me to my next question, which is directly related to the paper that you just published in ACS Chemical Biology. What was the strategy for the design of the CAP analogs for 4E? Well, the X-ray structure is known for 4E. Actually, there's an NMR structure. And so what we did is we rationally designed molecules that we thought might be able to fit into the binding pocket that would interfere with its ability to bind to the mRNA. And so we constructed a small cell, a small library by organic synthesis of those analogs, and we then tested them to see which ones would interfere with the ability for 4E to bind to the mRNA. So how well did the analogs work in assays and also in vivo? In the assays in which we used direct 4E binding to the protein, we had to figure out how to produce the protein, which took some time, which we were able to do. What we then did is we measured their affinities for the molecule. We then have cell-based assays, and we asked, you know, how well do they interact with assays in which we have all the components of the translation there, and then asked that. And what's interesting is that we can interfere directly with 4E binding, but the really complex processes must be going on because you don't necessarily get the same effect. In other words, the same potency doesn't seem to be directly translatable from, say, binding something very tightly with just a single molecule to a protein, as it does with trying to interfere with the process. That probably has to do with the fact that there are a number of proteins that are involved. 4E is the most important to start the process, but there's a number of processes that are going on that we don't really understand, and these chemical probes are actually providing insights into asking those questions that you can't really get from other methods. What we did in terms of the in vivo, we developed a zebrafish assay in which we can look at embryos sort of like as a cheap mouse um, because the embryos can grow very quickly within six to seven hours and we can see them directly with using the microscope. And so these are live organisms that are growing. And what we could do is we tested these then directly with these embryos and that showed us directly using this rather quick assay that you could get inhibition and modulation of uh, EMT directly. That hadn't been done before, and that'll provide a nice assay for further researchers wanting to get quick information and to development of other inhibitors of this process. That's quite interesting. And so I had one final question. What is the mechanism by which these analogs work? It's a good question because they're actually prodrugs. A prodrug is a drug that's a mask drug, and so its active component is sort of masked, uh, and you want to do that so it sort of protects it before it gets to right to the right place and then is, is unsheathed, as you might think, or unmasked. And so in this case, these are prodrugs, and when they're in vivo or in the, they're in the cells, they go in and then are activated by a protein called histidine triad nucleotide binding protein, or we refer to it as HINT. 
And we didn't realize that that protein was actually uh, in the embryos, and that's the first time that protein has been shown to be uh, in, in embryos. We're not sure why that's there, but our hypothesis was correct, and it activates the molecule such that now the active molecule can seek out and bind to 4E within the cells and in the embryo and shut down basically the EMT process. That sounds really interesting, and uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. We are joined today by Richard Miller at Pfizer. Hi, Richard. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. In the paper in ACS Chemical Biology, you mentioned that despite large discovery efforts in search of new antibacterial agents, alarmingly no new antibiotics have been approved for human use in the post-genomic era. What might be a reason for this failure? I see three main issues, really, in terms of the, uh, the failure to find new antibiotics, really, in the post-genomic era. First of all is the chemical matter itself, and I'll deal more with that in, in a moment. But the other issues are trying to understand how compounds get into bacteria. That is the penetration issue, avoiding efflux, that is pumping the compounds out, and then trying to build in enough spectrum that you can make a, a drug that will be useful to a general medical population. So getting back to the chemical matter, which is really where we see our manuscript making uh, contributions. The chemical matter of antibacterials tends to be quite a bit different than most drugs. They're higher molecular weight, they tend to be more polar, and they generally come from natural products. Drugs that affect human targets, on the other hand, tend to have been derived against a number of gene families that are present in eukaryotes, but not necessarily in prokaryotes. So you have a lot of drugs that target G-coupled protein receptors, kinases, proteases, and so on and so forth. And the screening files that we have in pharmaceutical companies tended to be um, derived against those sorts of targets. Antibacterial space, on the other hand, tends to be targets that are either not conserved with a human orthologue or simply not present in eukaryotes. And so when we uh, had uh, genomes of various bacteria and we'd started reviewing all of the different targets that we could potentially work on, we tended to deprioritize those that had a really high homology to the human orthologs. And so in a way, we were kind of pushing ourselves away from the bias of the files themselves. So I think, you know, over time, that just sort of led us to find fewer and fewer compounds that had the spectrum and activity that we wanted to. And so I think some of what we've shown in a recent paper, as well as this paper, are that if you approach screening files with targets that may have more homology to a human target, you might be more successful in finding initial leads. That's quite interesting, and, and it leads me to my next question, which is that new approaches would be very useful in the search for all sorts of new antibacterial agents. Can you please describe the approach that was taken by your group in this endeavor? Sure. So we had really a two-pronged approach here. And the reason we chose to try to do two different approaches here was that this had been actually quite a successful target for us. Uh, in a previous paper that came out in PNAS back in February, we identified a, uh, a very potent compound that targeted biotin carboxylase, which is involved in fatty acid biosynthesis. And so this compound was quite potent. It had mechanism-based antibacterial activity and actually had in vivo activity in animal infections. And so what was really interesting here was that the compound itself came out of a kinase inhibitor program. And when we solved the structure of the uh, biotin carboxylase with that compound in it, you saw actually a lot of similarity to eukaryotic protein kinases. So we thought that, well, since we have a uh, target that could potentially really work with the bias of the screening file, that this is really a target that we could really leverage with the file that we have in hand. It also had a few other features, like it was very easy to crystallize and obtain co-crystal structure. 
structures with inhibitors. So we decided to take a two-pronged approach. So there was a traditional fragment screen in which we took a small library of about 5,000 compounds and screened it for compounds that would inhibit the biotin carboxylase in a really high concentration assay. So we did those in pools of compounds, and then we were able to deconvolute which ones within those pools actually bound using a saturation transfer difference NMR, and then titrate those in an enzyme assay. So that gave us a small set of, of fragments hits to work with. And then we also used a different approach, which was more of a virtual screening approach, in which we took the structure of that initial inhibitor that I was just mentioning, and then used it as a probe with a set of electrostatic and shape similarity searching to go back into our compound file and then pull out compounds that mimicked that shape and electrostatic profile, dock them into the active site, score them, and then we actually had a computational chemist that did a visual inspection of the various poses and pulled out individual hits that he thought would be very unlikely to inhibit the enzyme. So with those two approaches, we came up with a set of five or six different inhibitors that we thought were worth following up on. And how successful were the two fragment-based approaches? Both of them were actually uh, worked quite well in the sense that they actually found very similar fragments. So some of the hits that were found in the high concentration NMR fragment screen were actually identified by the virtual screen as well. And uh, what's kind of interesting is that we ended up ultimately doing a high-throughput screen of the compound file and found the same hits in the uh, high-throughput screen that we did in the virtual screen. But the virtual screen actually made it quite a bit faster because it filtered down the hits to basically the best and most potent ones. So if you looked at the hit rate of the virtual screen versus the high-throughput screen, it was about 200-fold higher. So I can't really underestimate enough how important it was to have that initial co-crystal structure of the very potent inhibitor, and that's really what helped us in terms of prioritizing the fragments that came out of the screen. So, you know, we ended up with five series that we discussed in the paper that were quite potent. We ended up following up principally on two of those, but there's still quite a bit of work that could be done on the other fragments. So I think the ultimate success here was that we did take one of these hits and then elaborate on it to the point where we had a nanomolar potency, and that actually translated into mechanism-based antibacterial activity against the biotin carboxylase. Do you intend to pursue further studies of the leads identified in this paper? So antibacterials is really a huge area for Pfizer. The medical need is considerable, and we're always committed to looking at new analogs that improve potency, spectrum, or uh, work around some of the resistance issues that come up. So in regards to the specific series that we have in hand, we have some analogs that I hope we can publish on soon that do address and cover some of those issues that I brought up. But uh, we are always looking for new and better antibiotics. That sounds great, and good luck with those studies. Great. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Did you know that you can network with thousands of other professionals at the new ACS Networking site? ACS Network is a professional networking platform that enables you to connect, communicate, and collaborate with other like-minded chemists and chemistry enthusiasts. Sign up online today. You'll find a link with additional information on the ACS main webpage at www.acs.org. That's it for this month's show. Join us next month for more ACS chemical biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org. Thanks to all of you for listening.